Time series part 4 and this will be laying the foundation number 7 and we'll be dealing with persecution from within and without the church. We are looking at how to develop and train you to become effective ministers during this period of time, training yourself to how to function and how to live in the closing of this age. We've dealt with six foundations thus far. Foundation number one, the people are religious people from 2 Timothy chapter 3. We need to look at them and recognize them. Foundation number two is the people that we'll meet in Matthew 24 and 25, the four groups of people that Jesus judges. We'll be dealing with these people during this period. Foundation three, Derek Prince's seven reasons to be a student of biblical prophecy. Foundation four, the coming three ages until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Foundation five, the world views. Now those the previous foundation four, the, the, the slide, I put a slide up on the website. We'll be dealing with the slide a little bit in one of the um, preparation points for persecution. Foundation five, world views. Uh, three world views I shared with you, the Greek Western, the um, Eastern and the Hebraic biblical worldview and then foundation number six how things speed up as we get to the Amiga event of the prophetic revelation today we're looking at preparing for persecution from within and without now before we actually go into that I've got a couple of points I want to share with you now the first one of these points I want to just throw out is three words knowledge understanding and wisdom you need to develop and gain a biblical knowledge of the subject you need to understand the subject and then you need to have the wisdom to be able to apply what you know and understand from the subject so that you can minister function and live in the closing age so that is preparation and application your chances of survival increase exponentially as you move from one stage to the next so you move from just a knowledge base to an understanding or you move from an understanding base to a wisdom base or a preparation application, your probability for survival increases. I would personally say that just having a good, clear knowledge of the subject puts you in the top 10% of the church as to be ready for end times. Training and preparation is the key to success and to survival. I want to read to you a quote. Now, this quote comes out of the preface of my book, The Art of Personal Spiritual Warfare Factors. As of the date of this podcast, which is January 2016, uh, this book has not yet been published. But I want to read it to you, the preface, because it will give you uh, an understanding of training and preparation as we go into a... um, a terrible event that, that will be coming, which is the end, end of the age, the end times. Quote, I read a quote about spiritual warfare. I don't remember the person who gave the quote or where I read it, but it went something like this. Spiritual warfare is indeed, uh, is, uh, so, uh, let me re- repeat that. Spiritual warfare is needed for it is the key to revival. Personally, I believe that spiritual warfare is essential to living a victorious and overcoming Christian life. You cannot have one without the other. Our successes and failures in all aspects of our life and our kingdom ministries are linked to understanding and application of warfare. 
in ministry over the last few decades, I found that the more a person is aware of warfare and lives their lives and lives their life with the understanding that they're living in a universal war, the more that person lives the kind of life they were meant to live as given and offered by Jesus in John 10:10. 10, 10. Imagine two people living as neighbors before the blitz of World War II in England. Neighbor A lived with an understanding that they lived in the middle of a declared war, world war. Neighbor B, on the other hand, lived with an understanding that even though Europe was engulfed in the flames of war, it would never touch Britain. It was Europe's problem to deal with Hitler and Britain had nothing to be concerned over. Mr. A prepared and lived his life as if he was in the middle of a world war. He prepared himself and his family by familiarizing himself with the material provided by the authorities to be prepared, to be alert, to be watchful, and in the event of an attack, self-controlled. So he prepared a shelter for his family in the backyard. He stocked it with emergency essentials and he prepared his family with emergency drills to prepare them for the enemy attack, along with the consequences that would follow such an attack. This preparation covered many areas in the life of family A and it did cause a few problems. Effort, money, time and ridicule from within and without. However, in spite of the cost, he prepared himself and his family. Mr. B and his kids had a lot of fun at the expense of Mr. A. They especially enjoyed it in the summer before the Battle of Britain. It was a good summer and it was fun to watch Mr. A digging and preparing the bomb shelter in the backyard. Mr. B sat on his deck chair as the lazy days of the pseudo-war played out, and then the bombs started to fall. One of the enemy targets was the house of the B family, who had not set up blackout curtains, who had the last laugh. Noah would have such an experience, but any laughter would have been tragic and sorrowful because all had the same opportunity to prepare. Mr. B and his family sat in the bunker that Mr. A had prepared under the mocking laughter of the bees. The whole A family was in the bunker because Mr. A had prepared them in spite of the mocking and the resistance from within his family. The B family was also worried because their, two of their children did not make it to the shelter and they would have to wait until after the raid was over to try and find them. This story is so familiar to me. I see it played out in different situations and under different circumstances. You can find these stories scattered throughout the Bible from Noah to Nehemiah in the Old Testament to the parables of Jesus in the New Testament. In addition, you will find the story of the ten virgins in the Gospels and the explicit warning found in the writings of the Apostles. Yet we still have Mr. A's and Mr. B's in the church. Spiritual warfare is definitely the key to revival. It is the key to bring a disciple of Jesus Christ, is the key to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I believe you cannot be an effective disciple living in a victorious and effective Christian life without knowing and being able to apply the principles of the art of personal spiritual warfare. End quote. In Revelation chapter 6 verse 1 to 2, we read, As I watched, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now keep that scripture in mind because that is a picture of the Antichrist, the first horseman going out. Like spiritual warfare, those who prepare, 
those who are alert, those who are watching and waiting have a higher chance of surviving what is coming. An occupation of a nation begins by the surrender of its people and leaders. An occupation of a church, an occupation of the Christian, begins in the same way when, a, when the individual and or its leaders begin to surrender. This allows its defeat to take place from within. Due to the sleeping majority, due to this constant head in the sand action with regards to the realities out there, Due to the deliberate ignoring of society's watchmen and prophets, the enemy fifth column begins to secretly take control of all government apparatus and everything that has to do with the education and preparation of the populace. They then begin to flood society with all kinds of distractions that lead to a, mor a moral darkness. They silence the voice of the resistors of evil in society through persecution. So the voice of the true church as it preaches the gospel of the kingdom becomes silent. The government then moves into a social humanistic paradigm which moves away from God and towards the enemy. And this reduces the ability of the government to resist evil. And then the Holy Spirit then begins to step out. Then the nation is ripe for a takeover. The citizens let the fifth column open. The, the, the citizens, let alone the fifth column, open the enemy gates. The enemy then marches in, but they march in not as invaders, but as liberators, as saviors. And so begins the socialistic utopia and humanistic reign of terror. Antichrist was given a crown and he rode out to conquer. You just have to read your history to see examples. The 19th century is full of the examples of a humanistic, socialistic government that turns on its population and just murders them left, right and center. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. And he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. As the state of growing corruption takes place within the church, what happens is it opens the church up to persecution. And this is what we're going to be preparing you for. Now, last week I gave you a slide of the three ages and you can find that slide on our web page. The time frame will then begin to take us to the beginning of the second age. Contractions and birth pains. That's the first three and a half years. It's the age of the false prophet who is the second beast and his job is to facilitate the rise to power of the Antichrist which will take place at the breaking of the water if you have the slide in front of you and you're looking at that. And so what happens is the age of persecution really begins as the world begins to be prepared for the great tribulation. It's the age of the betrayer. It is the age of the quistling. It's the age of the traitor. Jesus warns us about this age. Matthew 24 verse 3 to 13. 
As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, what will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So this sermon, essentially, this foundation is to prepare you for that period of time that Jesus is talking about. Now there are a couple of characteristics that you need to be aware of. And I'm going to give them to you through various scriptures. And you can... Have that slide open of the of the three ages, the age of the Gentiles in the first three and a half years, and then the second three and a half years. So you've got the build-up, which is the age of the Gentiles, and then the contraction birth pain, which leads us into the age of the false prophet. That's my personal, what I'm personally calling it, uh, the rasped power of the Antichrist. And then you have the breaking of the water, which is the Antichrist takes power, and then the labor, and that's the tribulation, and then the birth, which is the second coming of Jesus. Let's look at some of these scriptures that will give you an idea of what is going to start to take place during this period of time. In Matthew chapter 24 verse 12, I'm going to read out of the NIV and out of the Amplified Version. NIV. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. For me, that is probably one of the saddest scriptures I, I, I can ever read. Where the love of most will grow cold. In the Amplified Version, it says lawlessness is increased. In Mark 13, verse 12, Amplified, Brother will betray brother to be put to death, and a father will hand over his child, and children will rise up and take a stand against parents and have them put to death. Verse 22 of Mark 13, Amplified, For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will provide signs and wonders in order to deceive. If such a thing were possible, even the elect, those God has chosen for himself. This is how severe this period of time is going to be. Luke 21, 16 to 17, Amplified. But you will be betrayed and handed over even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be continually hated by everyone because of your association with my name. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, I've underlined verse 3 and highlighted some areas as well. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. 
in verse 3 of the Amplified Version of 2 Thessalonians 2, it says this, Let no one in any way deceive or entrap you. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That is the great rebellion, the abandonment of faith by professed Christians. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, the one who is destined to be destroyed. So as we go into the first three and a half years, the age of the Antichrist, the rise to power, the age of the false prophet, the rise to power of the Antichrist, we will begin to see a radical amping up in degrees of persecution. Persecution of the remnant has already begun and it's just going to intensify. There is a wave, a tidal wave of wrath coming from both the devil and God and we'll talk about that later. And the church right now is preparing you for your next great blessing, froth and bubbles. Now, when you see this kind of thing taking place, then you need to be very, very aware that persecution is going to begin. And, and it's going to begin by the apostate church. They don't want to be exposed. And then with the apostate church beginning the persecution, the government is going to jump on. And then families are going to jump on. And then you're going to have all kinds of stuff being exposed within the families. Old scores are going to be settled. And the age of the betrayer begins without so much of, as a shot being fired. The nation is taken, the church is taken, the Christian is taken, the church goes into apostasy and the Antichrist begins his rise to power on death, destruction and devastation due to the effects of the breaking of the seals that, of, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ does. And all the world and most of the church are going to run out and call this man, the Antichrist, a hero and a saviour. Before I talk about these principles which I got from Jacob Prash, I want to talk to you about some principles of persecution. Now it's time for us to begin to understand about the subject of persecution. It's not a nice subject to talk about, but we need to begin to understand it. And we need to begin to understand that we need to begin thinking, acting and living like authentic end-time saints. Here are some principles of persecution. I'm going to read out of Revelation chapter 8, verse 8 to 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, NIV. And this is the letter to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Now notice how he addresses a church that is about to go into some severe persecution. He addresses them as the controller of, of, of history, the first and the last. And he addresses them as one who has already been persecuted, who died and came to life again and resurrected. Verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Notice that's how it begins. Watch for slander and watch for the increase of slander against Christians, Christian against Christian. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful 
even to the point of death, and I will give you the life, uh, give you life as a, as a, your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. It is so strange for me to preach a sermon like this, especially at the beginning of a new year, 2016. This is when this podcast will be going out. Most sermons that I'm listening to and seeing are all encouraging, all proclaiming, prophetically declaring that you're going to be blessed. And it's a day of the greatest blessing. Financial increase. Increase of this, increase of that. And here I am preparing you for persecution. (laughs) I'm preparing you, you know, for persecution where others are preparing you to experience the blessings of heaven right here and right now. So it's a little bit surreal for me. Now, I know that I'm preaching to a minority. I know I'm preaching to the remnant. But I seem to be in good crowd, although I've come a little bit late. Here is a, another quote, an extensive quote. It's a, it's a document, an article that comes from Billy Graham. The title of the document is this. Prepare for persecution, a message from Billy Graham. Now, let me read it to you. Now, I'm not going to read the whole article. There are uh, the the... the I'm going to give you his section headings, but I'm not going to go into each of those headings. Here it is. Quote, In the event of a national catastrophe, much confusion, terror, and consternation would reign. What would the Christian do? What should our attitude be? Which way would we turn if the country in which we live was suddenly wrecked and all uh, props gone? As a whole, our nation does not know what privatization is. We do not know what sacrifice is. We do not know what suffering is. Suppose persecution were to come to the church in America, as it has in other countries. The immunity immunity to persecution that Christians in our country have experienced in the past two to three centuries is unusual. Christ strongly warns Christians that that, that uh, to follow him would not be popular and that in most circumstances it would mean cross-bearing and persecution. The Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. Jesus says that at the time of his return draws nigh, they will seize you and persecute you. Luke 21 12. We have no scriptural foundation for believing that we can forever escape being persecuted for Christ's sake. The normal condition for Christians is that we, would, we should suffer persecution. Are you willing to face persecution and death for Christ's sake? What would you do? Since we have experienced little persecution in this country, it is likely that under pressure many would deny Christ. Those who shout the loudest about their faith may surrender soonest. Many who boast of being courageous would be cowardly. Many who say, though all others deny Christ, yet I never will deny him, would be the first to warm their hands at the campfires of the enemy. Jesus, in speaking of the last times, warned, Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and killed, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Matthew 24 verse 9 The scripture says, Because iniquity will abound, the love of many will grow cold, Matthew 
The Apostle Paul, referring to the coming evil day, said, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the day of evil, and having done all, to stand. Ephesians 6.13 Here are five ways to fortify yourself to say, to, so that you'll be able to stand in that day. Now I'm not going to give you the content, I'm just going to give you the titles. Number one, make sure of your relationship to God. Two, walk with God. Three, assimilate scripture. Four, Pray always. 5. Meditate on Christ. And here is the last paragraph. Will you stand? Today our nation ranks as the greatest power on the face of the earth. But if we put our trust in armed might instead of almighty God, the coming conflict could conceivably go against us. History and the Bible indicate that mechanical and material might are insufficient in times of great crisis. We need the inner strength that comes from a personal vital relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. The wheels of God's judgment can be heard by discerning souls across the length and breadth of the nation. Things are happening fast. The need for a return to God has never been more urgent. The words of Isaiah are appropriate for us today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call you upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Isaiah 55, 6-7. God needs men and women who will stand in the evil day. Will you be one of them? Will you come to the cross and in humility confess your sins to God and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Will you become one of God's warriors in this crisis hour? You can enlist today in the army of God by giving him your life to by giving your life to his son Jesus Christ and letting him become the captain of your soul. Yet to all who receive him he gave power to become sons of God to those who believed in his name John 1:12. And that's copyrighted 1957 BGEA. It still feels strange though to me. However, if you biblically and realistically look at eschatology, and if you biblically and realistically look at what's happening around you in the world today, free from any liberal, new world order, media-biased propaganda, I think you will see value in this sermon. The tragedy is we don't learn from history. And those that do are doomed to actually repeat it with those who don't. It's funny looking at the human condition, their refusal to look and learn from history. The problem is those of us learning are going to be dragged in and repeat the cycle through those that are not learning. Remember what happened then will happen again. What does your knowledge your understanding and your wisdom look like? Are you prepared? Can you apply what you know about end times? Okay, let's go into these points that we have. And I've got these points from Jacob Prash about when persecution comes. Firstly, persecution comes when we forget our job. Let's look at some of the fruits of persecution. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 to 4. And Paul approved of their killing him. This is Stephen. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 
godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Persecution comes when the people of God fail to do their job. If you are not making disciples, you are failing to do your job, and essentially when it reaches a specific mass, persecution is going to come. The apostles could not see God's purpose to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice that they might have forgotten what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 verse 23. When they persecute you in one city because of your faith in me, amplified, flee to the next. For I assure you and most solemnly say to you, you will not finish going through all of the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Persecution causes an introspective church to become a mission-minded church. Imagine what persecution is going to do with a church that is overflown with the doctrine of demons as we are currently. You know, we are so currently inward looking that we are not seeing our navels but our intestines. We, are, we, we look like the world. We're self-absorbed, consumed with a self-lifestyle, consumed with the world view running after signs and wonders, rolling around on the floor laughing and barking, and we've forgotten our first love and our commission, and we've forgotten that there is a tsunami of violence that is about to break over on our heads, and it's approaching us fast. We have forgotten that leading people to Christ and discipling them is our primary job. You know, we've got this attitude of let the unsaved come to us and hear the gospel. Let's, let's, let's turn our services into whatever... So that we get more and more unsafe people in. The problem is, when they come in, they don't even know the difference between a pop concert and a, and a, and a worship service anymore. Or a motivational speaker and a preacher of the gospel of the kingdom anymore. It's a gospel based on their needs, not on the message and call to repentance and obedience to Jesus Christ. We've forgotten the mission. Global discipleship. So persecution is God's panacea. A panacea is a solution for difficulties. It's a remedy for diseases. And persecution is God's way of dealing with a problem of blocked ears, self-absorption and inactivity. That's Afrikaans for those who will not listen must feel. A second principle of persecution coming is false doctrine. The more you have false doctrine, the less activity you have that is of God. So you have a decline and that's when persecution comes. Because persecution comes when we allow false doctrine to flourish in our midst. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 to 14, Jesus writes to the church of Pergamum. These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Listen to that. Okay, how does he address a church that has got false doctrine? Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. 
Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are those among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also hold those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Persecution comes in order to clean out the bad stuff. Once persecution ends... And we go to the next generation in comfort. We start to forget about what the effects of that persecution was. We get comfortable and the bad stuff comes back in. And we go through a repetition of persecution again. We don't learn from history. The church becomes identified with the world again. The world's values become the church's values. And the methods begin to start creeping in. And we have to go through a cleansing process again. And you can go and read, listen to that in the Deception series on iTunes, free for you to download. So here are seven principles for you to think about regarding looking at this topic for yourself. And again, I, ta- I, I need to say that I give, uh, I get, got these principles from Jacob Prash. Here's the first per- principle: when persecution is coming, before persecution comes. Jesus warns the faithful church and he warns the unfaithful church. Both get the warning. Here's a question. How do you determine the difference between the faithful and the unfaithful? Two answers. Very, very simple. The faithful are the ones that have ears to hear and the unfaithful are the ones that do not have ears to hear. If there is one characteristic of persecution, it is this. It's always going to separate the faithful from the unfaithful. When persecution comes and the heat gets turned up, it will always separate the faithful from the unfaithful. And that's why you're going to have a falling away. Persecution will always create a clear distinction between those who really love Jesus... And those who are not hoping in this world, but they are trying to live with their feet in two kingdoms. And they're not listening. Spirit of God is saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. And they're not listening. The first thing we see about persecution is that the Lord warns everybody. Ezekiel chapter 13 verse 4 to 7 NRV. You prophets Israel are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to the breaches in the walls to repair it for the people of Israel, so that it stands firm in battle on the day of the Lord. Now there we get the time frame, the day of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's addressing prophets of Israel at the end times. Now verse 6. Their visions are false and their divinations a lie. Even though the Lord has not sent them, they say the Lord declares and expect him to fulfill their words. Have you not seen false visions and utter lying divinations when they say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? Now, we go to verse 10, NIV, Ezekiel 13. And this is, this is what I've been throwing out at you a little bit here where they're running around declaring blessing upon blessing and financial increase upon financial increase 
when this wave of end time wrath is coming our way fast. Verse 10. Because they lead my people astray saying peace when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built they cover it with whitewash. Now this is repeated three times in Jeremiah and it's repeated again in the New Testament. The false prophets are running around telling people that there is peace, peace, where there is actually no peace. And they make predictions that do not come about and do not happen. And then they go on continuing to make other false predictions without being called to account with the ones that are false. The Greek idea of peace is an absence of conflict. The Greek idea of peace as opposed to the Hebraic Biblical or Hebraic term of peace is different. They, they have little to do with each other. The, the Hebrew, la shalem, means to pay, to fulfill or to fulfill. Now peace in Hebrew has to do with being filled. Fulfilled, it, means, it has to do with wholeness. So la shalem leads to shalom. We have peace with God because Messiah has come to La Shalem to pay the price, to fulfill the price, to fulfill. We have wholeness, we have completion, we have Shalom because Messiah came. He is our peace. John 14, 27. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So to the world, peace is the absence of conflict. Biblical peace has nothing to do with the world's peace. Jesus did not promise us the world's peace. Jesus did not promise us an abs- a life lived with an absence of conflict. His peace is not an absence of conflict. It might include it, but not necessarily. And if you are really preaching the gospel of the kingdom, I can assure you, you are going to get hammered from within the church and without the church. You can be in the worst conflict of your life, but you can still have shalom. Or you can be in the most serene position of with a total absence of conflict, but not not have shalom. Not as the world gives. So false prophets in the day of the Lord, second coming, just before the Lord's coming, will give you any great word that you desire. These people are running around saying, peace, peace. We're not saying no conflict, no trouble, no invasion, no persecution. That's what they were saying in in, in Ezekiel's day. Peace, peace. There's going to be no conflict. Don't worry about it. There's going to be no trouble. There's going to be no invasion. There's going to be no persecution. It's not going to happen. But the true prophets were running around getting persecuted for saying it is going to happen. Everything is wonderful. Everything is going smoothly. Couldn't be better. Everybody is healthy. Everybody is blessed. Everybody is going to be prosperous. There's a new blessing of finances around the corner. Revival is just around the corner. Great blessing is coming. Fall on the floor. Roll around. Laugh. This is what God wants you to have. All good things. And of course they predict things that do not happen. And they whitewash over their failed prophecies. 
Verse 10, Ezekiel 13. Because they lead my people astray, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, and because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Verse 14. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash, and will level it to the ground so that its foundations will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it, and you will know that I am the Lord. Here is the question that you need to be thinking about. When the Lord says he is going to tear down the whitewashed wall, what do you think that looks like in your daily life? What is the whitewashed wall? And when the Lord tears it down, what does it look like? Instead of building the church, building the people up for the coming invasion, instead of preparing the people for the coming apostasy, the falling away of Christians because of the rise of wickedness and evil and lawlessness, instead of preparing God's people for what is really coming, these false teachers and false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing, they are telling the people, that everything is going to be alright. Let me keep you laughing. Let me keep you falling on the floor. Rolling around and thinking that this is the anointing. Let me keep on telling you that blessing is just around the corner. Instead of warning you that what's around the corner is invasion. Babylonian captivity is imminent. The people were misled by their leaders who kept telling them the house of the Lord, God's people are victorious, we are triumphant and the opposite was going to happen. The enemy was already in the gates and you need to be prepared. So Jesus warns the church. God is trying to warn but only those who hear are going to be prepared. Nothing happens in the persecution of the church that did not happen in the persecution of, the, of Israel and of the Jews. It's going to happen exactly the same way. The principles. The one teaches about the other. If you want to know what it's going to look like, go and read about Israel's captivity. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 11. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Prepare for persecution. The first characteristic of persecution and how to prepare for it is to know that Jesus warns the faithful and the unfaithful, but only the faithful will have ears to hear. And remember, the minute you begin to prepare yourself, like Mr. A in the preface In the introduction of the sermon, persecution is going to come at you and it's going to start with mockery, it's going to move to slander and then it's going to get more and more insidious as we get closer and closer to the jump off point. Jesus warns the faithful and the unfaithful, but only the faithful have ears to hear. And I have no doubt in my mind that right now the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is telling the church that persecution is coming. He is telling the faithful. He is telling the unfaithful. But it's only the faithful that are going to hear. 
The unfaithful will follow leaders who are going to say we have peace, everything is alright, God is moving, we've got blessing. All of them oblivious to the reality of what's happening. They're going to follow the false prophets who are telling people everything that they want to hear. Everything is alright. They can carry on rolling around the floor and laughing. That's the, that's the anointing. And while the, it is obvious that the country and the world is going from bad to worse. And the false prophets are running around saying, peace, peace. But anyone in their right mind who can pick up a newspaper, look at the news, knows that the opposite is true. That's the first principle. The second principle is persecution is the, the devil at work, but God has a hand in it. Now listen carefully to the words of Jesus to the uh, Smyrna church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 NIV. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Persecution comes from Satan, but God not only brings life from death, but he brings good from evil. He turns persecution to his own ends. Only people who really love Jesus are willing to die for their faith. Only people who do not love their life in this world will be willing to surrender it. And so God uses these facts to weed out the false and unbelieving and to bring about a doctrinal and moral purity to the bride in preparation for his son's coming. The problem, however, with persecution is that the first people to be persecuted are actually the ones that need it the least. Mark 14:27 You will all fall away Jesus told them for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter I mean Jesus was the last person on this planet to be persecuted or needed to be persecuted or punished because of wrongdoing and yet he was It's always the lambs without blemish like Jesus who was slaughtered first The problem with persecution is that it is the Christian who does not need it, they're the ones that get it. They're going to be the first victims. The others are going to run away. When it becomes a legal offense to be a Christian, only the genuine Christian is going to stand. So you've got to watch for the time, the build up for that time coming. You've got to watch for the genuine Christian leaders. And as they begin getting silenced and ridiculed by the apostate church leaders, you need to start being very, very aware and your, 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 your listening needs to become more and more fine-tuned to what the Spirit of God is saying. Because those are precursors to what is coming. And it, that, that's, that, that, that will lead to legal and physical persecution after that. So what have we looked at so far? When persecution comes, before it comes, Jesus warns the faithful church and the unfaithful church at the same time. And number two, persecution is the devil at work, but God will turn it to his own good. Number three, principle number three. The foremost way the New Testament gives us to prepare persecution is to hope for the resurrection. You have to put your hope, trust and faith 
in being resurrected through Jesus Christ. The first thing Jesus says to the church that is about to go into persecution in Revelation 2 verse 8 is how he addresses them. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life. So people going into a persecution, Jesus comes along and says to them, Listen, I've done it. I've gone through it. I'm alive. I will make you alive. You've got to just believe. You've got to hold on. The resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection are the same event. Think about that. The resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection are the same event. When we were baptized, we, were, we, we, we died with Him. And when we came out of the water, we were resurrected with Him. We are raised with Him. Now the event doesn't take place at the same time. But it's the same event. When Jesus closes his message to the church in Smyrna, he says this in verse 10 to 11 NIV of Revelation chapter 2. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The idea is to be constantly looking to the resurrection. If your hope is in something other than the resurrection, you will never stand during real persecution. At the same time that the Lord Jesus begins to be preparing the faithful church for persecution, Satan is trying to deceive the faithful church into thinking it's not going to happen. So to catch them unprepared, spiritually and mentally. We're going to be victorious, kingdom now, peace, peace, and the opposite is happening. So you've got to remember in your preparation... You've got to understand the, persecu- the, the resurrection you've, and you've got to have hope in the resurrection. Principle number four. The poor are the rich because they will receive a martyr's crown. Revelation chapter 2 verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Even bad churches have good people. And good churches have bad people. You just have to look at these letters in the book of Revelation and you can see it there. I mean, you just have to look at the history of Lifehouse Church and you can see you know, we've, 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 had our, we've had our fair share of bad people. When we know we are going to be killed for our faith and anything that we could possibly hold on to in this world has gone. And when we've got nothing else to live for except our hope of Jesus and being resurrected in Him, you will see how quickly your worldview becomes unworldly and how your mindset will become more heavenly. But instead of having a church warning us 
about the natural inclination of our flesh to grab hold of things around us in the world, we have a backslidden kingdom now extreme church teaching that says that we've got to sort this world out and trust in what's going on around us. Blessed are the poor. Who do you think are the rich? Do you think that it's some Laodicean mega church in the suburbs? Do you think they are the rich ones? Do you think people listening to the prosperity preachers naming and claiming the ecumenical movement, the emergent church, everyone's gonna everyone's gonna be alright, love conquers all? Or is it the Christian in China meeting in a hut hiding from the police? Who's rich? When we get to heaven, we're going to find out who's got the big mansions. The poor are rich. It's going to be that guy in the hut. The fifth principle, this is the principle here. The principle here connects persecution with false brethren. Revelation chapter 2 verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now here it is. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now that's why I was preparing you in the first two foundations with the type of people you will be dealing with. And in the next sermon you will see that the first areas where we've got to watch out for is within the church. This is going to come from within the church. Persecution does not begin outside of the church or outside of the community of God's people. Persecution will always begin within. And that will give boldness to those without and then they will pile on. The first persecution of the church took place within Judaism. You know, we hear a lot about Christian anti-Semitism. And, 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 and we hear a lot about what Christians have done to the Jews down the ages. And that is correct. It is true. It has happened. But the unsaved Jews first persecuted the saved Jewish Christians long before Christians persecuted the Jews. And that, there's, there's a principle that you will learn. Persecution... Is in the West is not going to come by a policeman first of all knocking on your door or a government official passing a law to outlaw the preaching of the gospel or to rewrite the scriptures. It will come there. That will come. We will see that kind of a manifestation in the age of the false prophet and the rise to power of the Antichrist. But persecution will always begin by those who call themselves our brothers but are not. It's the nominal Christian. It's the Christian that is lukewarm who is going to persecute you because you uphold the word of God. It's the apostate Christian who begins persecuting the faithful Christian. So persecution is always, first of all, attached to false brethren. Isaiah 66.5 Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. The Hebrew could 
better be translated. The, the, the better translation from the Hebrew could be, your brothers who hate you because of the word. These are the ones who do not adhere to the word of God. And yet when you apply the word of God to your life, and that has an impact within the relationship between you and them, it begins with them in subtle ways mocking you, and then it goes to slander, and, 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 and you've got to watch out for mockery and slander because that is a precursor to persecution. They will exclude you because of what is in the Bible. And they will call themselves your brothers. Jeremiah 18, 18, NIV. They, say, they said, come, let us make plans against Jeremiah, for the teaching of the law by the priests will not cease, nor will the counsel from the wise, nor will the word of the prophets. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. The judgment of God was coming on a backslidden nation and Jeremiah was trying to tell the people the truth while other people were telling the, the people lies. And he was saying the stuff that both the leaders, the false preachers and the people did not want to hear. You, you need to understand that. He was saying stuff. He was saying the truth that the leaders and the people didn't want to hear. Yet they could not deny it. So what did they do? They attacked him. Today, look at the prophets that keep predicting things that do not happen and prophesying blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And look at the people who whitewash over the things that do not happen and yet continue running after them to get the blessing and blessing and blessing and look at their response to those who dare say whoa, hold on a second we need to deal with what has not taken place do you really believe things within the church are going to continue on like they are without divine intervention look at your history look at your bible look at the facts in public jeremiah was pointing to the facts that were irrefutable and the establishment had to stop him from telling the truth today it's the same they will go after anybody who tells the truth from a personal one-on-one -on -one to denominational they can never deny what you say. But they're just going to go after what, after you for saying what you are saying. Everybody knows the truth. But they're going to attack you for daring to speak the truth out. But people are rolling on the floor and claiming that that's God is doing great things. Many churches and church denominations are voting overwhelmingly to allow homosexuals practicing homosexuals to be ministers. Many large churches and some denominations are going into insolvency and having financial corruption issues. And many churches, individuals within churches and denominations are sliding into moral depravity and becoming more worldly than the world. Persecution is not coming. Persecution is here. They are creating the way 
for the next level of persecution to come. And that will be from government and family. Formal legal persecution is just a natural outcome of persecution that is taking place within the church. Number six. In the last days, normal sporadic persecution will compound, be compounded by a eventual universal declaration against the gospel. Right. Persecutions historically have always tended to be local and sporadic. It's not everybody getting it all the time. I mean, if you just look at history, if you just look currently, you know, you'll have a sporadic local persecution in China or India that takes place uh, every now and then. And it's not everybody getting it all at the same time. But it is going to come. The Antichrist is going to come after Christianity and Israel globally if possible the outlawing of the gospel will become universal if possible but not everybody is going to be killed some are going to get away some are not going to get away some are going to flee and some are not going to flee the lord's going to tell some people to get out and the lord's going to tell people some people to stand persecution is not every christian being wiped out it will grow into a global persecution led by the false prophet and really begin to be perpetrated by the Antichrist. But it starts always inside the church. The seventh principle. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The Lord never allows us to suffer what, more than what we are able to take. And so that persecution that's coming will only be for a fixed period of time. The Great Tribulation, the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's troubles, is a fixed three and a half year period. One of the things that makes the Great Tribulation unique is that it's for a limited time and there are certain parameters. The lordship of history will be given over into Satan's hands and, 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 and be operated through the Antichrist. Jesus was given three and a half years. The Antichrist can demand equal time. One day, ten years, three and a half years. God sets the parameters. Just have to go and read the case of Job. Read Job 1.12. Read Job chapter 2 verse 6. The Lord will set the limits. He will never allow his people to suffer more than they can handle. Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 to 10. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life, your life as your victor's crown. The Greek word for tribulation means being pressured to the point of anguish. The pressure is going to build. It's going to get worse. The Bible uses seismology and, and, and a woman's pregnancy to give us an idea, an illustration of what this looks like. Matthew 24, 8-13. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Right? And, then, and from verse 9 to 13, it goes through what the birth pains are going to be looking like as they increase. The pressure gets worse and worse and worse until a very definite event takes place. 
So what we've got to do is when we in our preparation, both spiritually, mentally, physically, and financially, we've got to understand that we, we, we mustn't allow fear to make us abandon our faith. It is only for a specific period of time. We have to look to the resurrection. We have to look to the second coming of Christ. Keep your eye on the baby coming if you're looking at the birth pains. Keep your eye on the end product, on what you're expecting to get out of this. And then you're going to be able to handle this. Those who are trusting in this world will fear. Those under pressure, those who are carrying too much undealt with strongholds, those who are holding sin too closely without dealing with it, they will fear what is going to happen to them. And because they are trusting in this life, in this world, and are holding on to things that are attached to this world, they're going to run away from Jesus Christ. Who is going to fear and fall away? The, on, the ones who only love themselves, who only love this world, and who trust this life. Let me bring this to an end. I'm going to read out 14 points and then I'm going to read again the scripture in Revelation chapter 2, 8 to 11. Point number one, Jesus warns the faithful and the unfaithful, but only the faithful here. Two, persecution is of the devil, but God uses it to correct and purify the church. Three, our means of coping with persecution is our belief in the certainty of the resurrection. Four, those who are poor are actually rich because they are heirs to the martyr's crown, the crown of glory. 5. Persecution begins not outside the church but within. It begins with false brethren. 6. Persecution tends to be sporadic and local. Not everyone gets it. Ultimately, persecution is going to be universal but do not think of it as total and absolute eradication. The remnant will always get through. You have to look at, the, you look at your biblical history. Number seven, fear not. Do not phobia. Those who phobia, those who fear, will run away from their faith in order to save their neck and they will lose everything. Eight, look at the end result. Look at what will happen when it is over. Look to the coming of the king. Look to the rapture. Number nine, we will all be tested. And the testing will show us who is who. God already knows who we are. But he's going to want us to know who we are. Number 10. When we stand before him on that day, there's going to be no excuses. And neither is there going to be any apologies. It'll be too late for apologies. It's going to be too late for excuses. You will not be martyred. But you will have to be willing to be martyred if you're not. Number 11. If you die for Jesus, you die once and that's it. See you in heaven. If you live for Jesus, you're going to have to die every single day. Remember, not too many great men of the Bible died happily. But they were all happy to die. Number 12. When persecution comes, some people will stand that you will not expect. Other people will fall who you thought would stand. You just have to go and read Fox books of, of, of the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And you'll see that those who should have stood ran away and those people that you thought would never stand actually stood. Lastly, 
God judges the heart. He knows what is really in us. If there's one thing that is going to bring out what is really in us, it's going to be persecution. So when persecution comes, we are really going to find out who's who. Fire, pressure, brings out what's inside. Goal refined by fire. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Right, let's move on to Foundation 5. We've looked at the three coming ages in Foundation 4. Foundation 5 is a quick overview on world views. I've got three points here. If you have your book, if you have your, sorry, your book, <laughs> your PDF, which you can download, um, you'll be looking at slide number 18, slide number 19, and slide number 20. Please excuse the crudeness of the graphics. Uh, I'm not very competent in that kind of computer work. Now, slide number 18 deals with the Western Greek worldview. It goes from, in a straight line, we think in a straight line from an alpha point to omega point. It starts here, it finishes there. So, alpha point to the eschaton, to the parousia, to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very simple way of looking at the world. The Eastern or Oriental worldview from slide number 19 is circular. A circular view of history, like the four seasons, light to dark, dark to light epitomizes or shows you reincarnation which is primary to their worldview you find that in the snake and the wheel humanism shamanism i mean in the ancient canaanite religions you had baal would um, die and rise again in spring every year and then the final one which is slide number 20 which is the biblical worldview that comes from the ancient hebrews and also it comes from the writers of the jewish new testament this is how they viewed the world view. It's neither east nor west. Just like a western world view, you would have an alpha point and an omega point. Culmination of the eschaton, the prusia, the return of the, G of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, instead of a linear, straight linear view like the Greeks or the West, it is circular, it is cyclical. So things repeat on themselves. History repeats itself all the time. So when they are reading the Bible or when they are reading history, they will see many antichrists. And for them, each antichrist will give them a picture and build a story, a narrative of what the final one is going to be like. So when they looked at the two Herods, they saw an antichrist. When they looked at the emperors of Rome, they saw antichrists. Modern history, Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler were all antichrist. These give us a picture of what the final one will be like. And then you can just times it 
exponentially to how bad that one is going to be. So there were many Babylonian empires. Daniel chapter 2, the vision of, of, of the statue. Many empires through history that represented the Babylonian system. Each one giving a picture of what the final one is going to be like. There have been many rescues of the remnant. Each rescue, each remnant will give you a picture of what it's going to look like when the prophecies of the last days get fulfilled. So you go from an alpha point to an omega point in a linear progression but not a straight line. As you get closer to the end point, what will begin to take place is the intensity of the cycles get bigger and they get closer and closer together. Now let's move on to foundation six. As we get closer to the Omega point, things are going to speed up radically. And I got this teaching from Jacob Presh and I thought it was a brilliant teaching. I really, I really love it. And I'm going to try and express it to you here. Now, in on slide 21, you will see two arrows starting from Abraham on the top arrow to Jesus 2,000 years, and at the end there's a 35-year demarcation within the 2,000 years. The next arrow down is the first coming, between the first coming and the second coming, roughly 2015 years, 2,015 years, plus minus. Now, relating to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there were many hundreds of prophecies relating to when he would come for the first time. Now, try and wrap your head around this. Most of those prophecies were fulfilled in that last 35-year period. God was preparing Israel for the first coming of Jesus. And He's been preparing us, the church, virtually the same amount of time for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now when we look back to the book of Acts... And look at all that's happened. It's very similar to when the Jews look back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Similar time frames. Now, out of the 2000 year period between Abraham and Jesus, most of what the prophets said about the first coming of Jesus was fulfilled in a time frame of 35 years. Think about that. In less than one generation. Move to slide 22 please. Now I've tried to put two little red arrows there from the 35 year period on the top arrow to the second arrow which now the second arrow is now the 35 year period of time. Now most of the prophecies in that 35 year period of time were actually only fulfilled in the last four years. Okay, most of the 35 year, most of the prophecies in the 35 year period of time were fulfilled in the last four years. Most of the prophecies in that last four year period of time were fulfilled in six and a half days. Now, try and wrap your head around that in less than one week. 
So, the, so by far the vast percentage of all the hundreds of prophecies that were given relating to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ over a 2,000 year period were fulfilled in less than one week, six and a half days. What you've got to understand by this is the closer you get to the target, to the omega point, to the return of Jesus, the quicker things are going to happen and the more prophecies are going to be fulfilled. So you might get a prophecy being fulfilled year one and then you might get another one fulfilled year 40. But as we get closer to the Omega point, they're going to start getting fulfilled in such rapid progression that it's going to blow our minds. So to try and calculate these dates using maths or whatever, taking into account the speeding up factor, taking into account the various variables of secret things and revealed things, take into account the secular fulfillment of prophecy from a Hebraic first century church point of view is going to be extremely difficult. The only time you can really start putting chronological dates in place is at the seven year mark, the beginning of the seven year mark by the signing of the peace treaty and especially in the middle by the abomination of desolation. Certain things have to happen before Jesus comes the second time. Many of them have happened. And many of them are continuing to happen as we speak. Israel was born as a modern nation in 1948. They got Jerusalem back in 1968. Since then a lot of Jews are becoming Christians. Since Israel was united with them from the 60s. But what we also seen is we've seen the nations of the world beginning to turn increasingly hostile towards Israel, which is God's timepiece for the nations. There is one nation whose record in the Middle East for human rights is virtually exemplary, and that is Israel. And yet it is the one nation that continually gets picked on and condemned by the United Nations, especially by the United Nations Human Rights Council. The sick joke of the Human Rights Council is full of all these countries that are Islamic around Israel whose human rights records are atrocious to say the least. Saudi Arabia being the the head of the Human Rights Council. It's a joke. Even certain people in the churches and certain churches and denominations are turning against Israel. Why is this? Well, what does the scriptures say? You know, the nations are going to start to turn against Jerusalem to try and prevent the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to look at how quickly things are starting to happen. Let me give you an example now. Over a 10 year period. Think about the Jews on Kristallnacht in Germany and in Europe around 1938. So between 1938... Now remember patterns, eh? just remember patterns. Between 1938 to 1945, they went through the Holocaust. Over 6 million Jews were murdered. Between 1938 and 1948, they had a nation in the Middle East, in their own land, the land that was given to them by God to their forefathers, in 10 years. Now that is a pattern that you can take and apply to the end times with the Antichrist and the Battle of Armageddon and the war war in that seven year period. 
how 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 they're going to be really hard pressed, attacked, and Jesus is going to rescue them, and then the, the Messianic Jews will reign with Jesus from Jerusalem and Israel for a for a millennia for the you know as he sets up his kingdom. So do you see how these patterns repeat themselves? Look at how quickly the European Union is declining financially, socially, morally. Before our very eyes, it's just disintegrating. The current wave of immigration, so-called immigration refugees from the Middle East, very suspicious. Look at how quickly the United States and other Western Democratic nations are morally unraveling before our very eyes, where there where there is a, a deliberate, intentional rise in racism. What does the Bible say? Ethnos against ethnos. In the last days, now you look at the church. When I came into ministry, just over twenty five years ago, if you had told me. That there would be a gay married pastor leading churches, being ordained as ministers in churches in, in, in mainline denominations, I would never have believed you. Just recently I saw in the newspaper one of the mainline reformed churches in South Africa, the Dutch Reformed Church, by a 60% majority vote, accepted the ordination of gay, practicing gay pastors. I would not ever have believed that growing up. If you had told me that I would see pastors praying for Planned Parenthood abortion centers, standing outside these Planned Parenthood abortion centers and praying for them, these centers which are centers where the children are murdered and eugenics is practiced, I would never have believed you. I would not have believed you. I cannot believe the level of deception and apostasy across the mainline evangelical denominations now with all what's going on with the emergent church movement. I would not have believed you if you told me that was going to happen. I would have not have believed you if you had told me what was going to take place in the Pentecostal charismatic churches with, with what is taking place with the money preachers and, 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 and this false prophetic stuff that's going on. False apostolic stuff that's going on. You can download my Deception in the Church series for free off iTunes. Get to our webpage and get the links through. All of this has taken place in less than one generation. I would never have thought it possible when I was ordained into the ministry in 1988. The closer you get to the Omega point, the faster you're going to be going. Remember that. Things are speeding up. And most of the church is asleep. And they're going to be caught out by the speed of things to come. I've spoken about the parable of the ten virgins. In Matthew chapter 25 verse 1 to 6 and verse 13. Go and read it again. Remember... When the bridegroom went, all, the, all of the virgins, all the ten, the wise and the foolish, they all became drowsy and they all fell asleep. And verse 13 tells us, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or hour. How prepared are you? 
How are you going to minister in the days ahead if we are going into that transition period into the seven years? How are you going to minister in the transition period and going into the seven year period, the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years? How are you going to function? How are you going to live? These are things you need to be considering. These are things you need to be meditating upon. Knowledge of, understanding of, and wisdom to apply. Let me recap the six foundations we've dealt with so far in these last three sermons. Foundation one, we looked at religious people and what you need to do and how you need to handle religious people. And that is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Foundation 2, we spoke about the people that you're likely to meet through the three ages. And that was out of Matthew 24 and 25. And then today we looked at the foundation 3, the seven reasons. Derek Prince's seven reasons to be a student of biblical prophecy. Foundation 4, the coming three ages until the return of Jesus Christ. Foundation 5, worldviews. And now we've just finished with how things are going to speed up and how the Revelation of prophecy speeds up. Next, we'll be looking at the subject of persecution. And so for homework, what I would like you to do is to read, meditate and study the seven letters to the churches from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So basically you can read and study and meditate on Revelations chapters 1 to 3. Thank you. God bless.